Hey, pastors, we know you love your clerical shirt because of what it means, but how does it feel? Under all those vestments, is it hot and sticky? Is it too tight, too loose, or just not comfortable? Wicking Vicar has the solution for you. The Performance Clerical Shirt, featuring four-way stretch to let you move and moisture-wicking fabric to keep you cool. Plus, it's machine washable and wrinkle-resistant. Visit wickingvicar.com and treat yourself to more stretch, more movement, and easy care. The Performance Clerical from wickingvicar.com. wickingvicar.com. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture, our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 22 on both kinds in the sacrament. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation, in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Timothy Apple. He is pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. He's also one of the pastors with his circuit helping with the newly established Confessional Lutheran Church Plant of Epiphany in Bastrop, Texas. And he is also host of Sharper Iron, the daily morning Bible study at 8 a.m. Central here on KFUO Radio. Pastor Apple, welcome back to Concord Matters. It is a joy to be with you, Pastor Smith. Yes, a joy to have you back on again and get to study the confessions with you, which of course are grounded in the scriptures, which you do daily with your show. And so great to kind of bring those together today, especially as we're celebrating the 492nd anniversary of the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. What better way to celebrate that than to actually discuss the theology of the Augsburg Confession? Amen to that, Pastor Smith. The date, June 25th, should be on the calendar of Lutherans even more so, I think, than October 31st. The presentation of the Augsburg Confession is a monumental event for Lutherans in which we state what we plainly believe, teach, and confess, and so we should observe it with great joy today, and it is good to discuss the theology contained therein with you today. Absolutely, and you and I kind of joked before we went on air here, you know, maybe at the 500th anniversary, we'll do a bigger show dedicated more just to that. But I think there's no better way, as you said, than to just honor this by getting into the theology and covering these articles as we continue to make our way through here. So that's what we're going to do. And actually today, it didn't line up this way originally in the planning, as the listeners will know, of course, that there was, you know, a couple week delay as I moved to take my new call here at Bethlehem and Mason City. And it ended up lining up this way, that this article is right at a transition point in the Augsburg Confession, where we begin to review some of the various abuses that have been corrected. And we've talked some about how this all came out of those Torga articles, and you've got some more information on that. And so we'll get into that a little bit here. But I think it is interesting that basically now we're really hitting the meat of 
what it was that the Augsburg Confession was even being presented for and how it came to be. And so uh, that's kind of nice that it lined up and worked out that way. I'd like to say I did that on purpose, but of course I did not. But let's go ahead and get into this then today, because there is a lot to talk about, both on that main article that we're going to look at today in terms of Article 22 on both kinds in the sacrament. But then let's start with talking about this transition point here with a review of the various abuses that have been corrected. And I'm going to go ahead and read this from, of course, on the show, we use Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition, the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is, again, the the title. If you're looking in your reader's edition of the Book of Concord, it's not listed as an article, although it does receive new paragraph numbers. It's after the summary at the end of Article 21 and before Article 22 here. And it's just titled A Review of the Various Abuses That Have Been Corrected. And it says this, Our churches do not dissent from any article of faith held by the church Catholic. They only omit some of the newer abuses. They have been erroneously accepted through the corruption of the times, contrary to the intent of canon law. Therefore, we pray that your imperial majesty will graciously hear what has been changed and why the people are not compelled to observe those things that are abuses against their conscience. Your imperial majesty should not believe those who have tried to stir up hatred against us by spreading strange lies among the people. They have given rise to this controversy by stirring up the minds of good people. Now they are trying to increase the controversy using the same methods. Your imperial majesty will undoubtedly find that the form of doctrine and ceremonies among us are not as intolerable as these ungodly and ill-intentioned men claim. Besides, the truth cannot be gathered from common rumors or the attacks of enemies. It can easily be judged that if the churches observed ceremonies correctly, their dignity would be maintained and reverence and piety would increase among the people. All right. And that is, again, a review of the various abuses that have been corrected, which falls between Article 21, the worship of saints, which we covered last week. And interesting enough, that's obviously one of the abuses that were corrected at the Reformation as well. And one of those things that gave rise to the Reformation. Uh, So it's kind of interesting that it falls here, but it falls between Article 21 and Article 22 on all kinds of the sacrament here. So Pastor Apple, go ahead and help us understand what's going on with this transition here. You mentioned earlier that the Torgau articles had been composed in the year 1530, early in the year, not long after the call for the Diet at Augsburg had been given. The electors put forth Luther and Melanchthon and Bugenhagen and Justice Jonas. These four began working on what are we going to present at this Diet of Augsburg? And they began by writing what are called the Torgau articles, which listed many of the changes in practice that had been given. It didn't really deal with the doctrine per se. That wasn't the primary thing. Of course, the doctrine was involved, but the primary thing was to say, this is why we've changed this practice, which of course, as as I mentioned, that does lead into a discussion of doctrine. That was the original plan to present those Torgau articles or something very similar to it, dealing with these various abuses that have been corrected. That was the plan to present at Augsburg. What changed that is that when they arrived in Augsburg prior to the actual Diet of Augsburg, they discovered that the old nemesis of Martin Luther, John Eck, he had published the 404 articles in which he painted Luther and his teachings 
as heretical in every way, shape, or form. He tried to connect Luther to any heresy or any deviation from true doctrine that he could. And in order to defend themselves against that, they widened the scope of what they were going to present at Augsburg into what we have in front of us today, where they were at pains, and you saw this in the first 21 articles, they were at pains to say, we are teaching what the church has always taught. We're not teaching what the enthusiasts, the Protestants are teaching, if I can use that term more theologically, not not as historically. We're not teaching what, say, the Anabaptists and the Calvinists later and the Reformed. That's not what we're teaching. We're teaching what the church has always taught. And so that's how the Augsburg Confession really got widened to what we get today, where you talked about, well, who is God? Well, that really wasn't, they weren't at odds at that before the Augsburg Confession, but the Lutherans put it in the Augsburg Confession in order to say, we are a part of the church Catholic. We are teaching what the church has always taught. When you get now to where we are today, this transition between Article 21 and 22, we come now to a lot of that material that was in the Torgau Articles. Some of it, when you look at the Torgau Articles, some of it did make it into the first 21 articles, probably for those reasons of the interplay between doctrine and practice. But now we're really going to transition more into, these are the abuses that were happening in the church at the time. And this is how the evangelical confessors, the Lutherans, decided to change those things, not for the sake of just changing things, but for the sake of consciences, so that consciences would be able to rest in the truth that they are justified through faith in Christ alone. And so that's the transition we're seeing here. Yeah. And as you hit in there, you know, some of those things from the Torgau articles we have seen in the previous 21 articles, again, even with that 21st article, which was obviously something, an abuse that had crept in over time and could rightly fit in this. That was still kind of one of those major things that was happening in the church. And so I think kind of maybe falls under in that sense. But You know, we have seen some of these things incorporated into the first 21 articles. And at times there's been a little back and forth between the Lutherans and the Augsburg Confession and then the Confutation. And of course, we get to the Apology. But by and large, we've seen a good number of things where, yes, this is what the church has always taught. And the Roman Catholics in their Confutation, you know, by and large accepted most of those first 21 articles. Obviously, if they were to get into a little greater detail and so forth, and we've talked about several of those things, you know, kind of gets unraveled in their own theology and, and they maybe didn't quite see how much it stood against it. But obviously we're getting into the real meat here. But I think it's also important to highlight here that as you hit on there, this is the correction of abuses. And you talked about, you know, using the Protestants in terms of the theological term and so forth, unless not necessarily how it got historically applied. And that's kind of what they're getting at here, I think, with these things that have been rolled at the Lutherans as if they are throwing the baby out with the bathwater and so forth. And, you know, what we commonly will say, it was a conservative reformation for the Lutherans. If you were to look at the Lutheran worship service and so forth, you'd think that they're still doing the mass, you know, the Roman Catholic mass in a lot of ways. And we've talked about some of those things in the previous articles, but especially as we're going to get into here you know, the outward form of things didn't necessarily have big change, but we certainly did change the things that, as you rightly point us to, and this this is the main point, I think, that we want to especially get with when we get to Article 22 here. The main point would be 
that it's for the consolation of the conscience, right? I mean, that's, we make the point on this show all the time. That's really for the comfort of our Christian souls and the care of our Christian souls. That's what the Reformation was ultimately really about, especially for Luther, but also for the Lutheran reformers as well. So did you want to make any comments on that in terms of kind of the conservative approach to the changes here and so forth? I think you do see the conservative approach to the changes in the first paragraph of what you read previously. And it it makes the point, look, we're omitting only some of the newer abuses. We're trying to fix the abuses. And by the way, these are newer. They don't have the history within the church. And we will certainly see that as we look at Article 22. Definitely the emphasis on the conscience comes through in these paragraphs, and we will see it as well in Article 22. In this particular section that you read at the end of the first paragraph, it speaks about why people should not be compelled to observe those things that are abuses against their conscience. And I think what we'll see as we go into Article 22 is that what gives offense to the conscience is when the conscience is forced to go against the clear word of God. That's really what's at stake in Article 22. What does the Lord command? What does he say when it comes to the sacrament of the altar? And the confessors say, we want to do that. We want to follow the clear words of Christ, nothing more, nothing less. And I think that is definitely their approach when it comes to the abuses that they are correcting. As you said, they're going to take a pretty conservative approach when it comes to the worship service itself, the mass. That'll come up, especially in Article 24 coming up. It is interesting, though, in in this particular article, the both kinds and the sacrament. With this article, it is primarily the papists who are in view they're the ones who are communing only in one kind. And so when you looked at a Lutheran worship service and a papist worship service, this would be a very clear difference within the service. But the key here is this is a difference that goes to the words of Christ. What has Christ given us? What has he commanded us to do? And again, that's very much related to the matter of the conscience. Absolutely. And I'm going to go ahead and throw this in there too, but I want to preface it by saying, You know, I'm not being attacking in this or trying to be flippant about this either. But the real concern here is, if we can put it in some other terminology, is contemporary worship practices, right? And I use that in the purest sense that, you know, when these things come in, and and I'm even willing to put the best construction on it, that at times, and we'll see this, I think, in Article 22, I think that there was a genuine concern of desire to be faithful and to consider some things that some of these contemporary practices came into the church. But they're not the historic practice, and they really do generate bigger trouble for the conscience. And so they're bad innovations to introduce, and some better thinking probably should have went into how we hold true to the faithful things uh, and not bring in and introduce newer innovations. It's just always kind of dangerous in that sense. Just because if nothing else, you know, you don't have the benefit of time that has found that these things are faithful to scripture because they have stood the test of time. You know, just because it's old doesn't make it automatically better. But, you know, generally when something's around for a long time, well, then it can be traced back to, as we see constantly throughout the Augsburg Confession, this is the way the apostles did it with the early church. This is the way that the church fathers promoted it. And when we get those newer innovations and so forth, that's when we tend to get into some trouble. You're, I think you're right about the idea of the newer. And one of the things that we will see when we get into Article 22 is that the confessors do go through the history and they say, this is where we see 
various church fathers talking about receiving communion in both kinds. But even as they talk about the history, which is on the confessor's side, it's pretty plain that what matters to them is what Christ has said. So that even if the history wasn't on their side, which again it is, but even if it wasn't, even if the practice of communing in just one kind went really far back, the confessor still would put above that the clear command of Christ. And again, that's the only place where the conscience can have true peace, is when it rests on what Christ has said. When the conscience isn't able to rest on what Christ has said, then there's going to be that question, what if? Is this really the gift of Christ? Is this really what he wants me to have? And, and anytime that doubt comes in, the conscience is not at rest. And so we are going to see, again, to make it clear, history is on the side of the Augsburg Confession here. But that's not the final point. That's not the ultimate point. The point is, what has Christ said? Let's do that. I think that's well said. Are we ready to go ahead and jump into Article 22 then? Let's do it. All right. So this is Article 22 from the Augsburg Confession on both kinds and the sacraments. And again, we are reading from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, that reader's edition of the Book of Concord. And here begins paragraph one. The lady are given both kinds and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper because this practice has the Lord's command, drink of it all of you, as it says in Matthew 26, verse 27. Christ has clearly commanded that all should drink the cup. And lest anyone misleadingly say that this refers only to priests, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, Paul cites an example. From this, it appears that the whole congregation used both kinds. This practice has remained in the church for a long time. It is not known when or by whom or by whose authority it was changed. Cardinal Cusanus mentions the time when it was approved. Cyprian, in some places, testifies that the blood was given to the people. Jerome testifies to the same thing when he says, The priests administer the Eucharist and distribute the blood of Christ to the people. Indeed, Pope Galasius commands that the sacrament not be divided. Only a recent custom has changed this. It is clear that any custom introduced against God's commandments is not to be allowed as church law bears witness. This custom has been received not only against the scripture, but also against old canon law and the example of the church. Therefore, if anyone preferred to use both kinds in the sacrament, they should not have been compelled to do otherwise as an offense against their conscience. Because the division of the sacrament does not agree with the ordinance of Christ, it is our custom to omit the procession with the host, which has been used before. All right, that is the entirety of Article 22 from the Augsburg Confession on both kinds in the sacrament. All right, Pastor Apple, go ahead and get us into this article. What's going on here? And let's begin with, of course, that history at the time of the Reformation, what their argument is centered here. I think that that historical background is important, particularly for this article, because both kinds in the sacrament, I think, may sound strange to modern ears. In fact, I conducted a very informal poll earlier this week with two of my members here who happened to be coming through my office while I was looking at this. And I asked them, have you ever been to a church service in which people only communed in one kind? One of them quickly asked me, do you mean a Lutheran service? And I said, well, any church service. And she was quick to respond, well, I've been to a Roman Catholic service in which they only commune in one kind. The other one had no idea what I was talking about, had never encountered this practice before. And I think that's 
relatively true, particularly when we're talking about people who are our generation, you and I, Pastor Smith, our generation and younger, they may have very little experience with what is this matter of communion in both kinds or one kind. The practice of communion in one kind, which was being practiced at the time of the Reformation, is that the laity who received the sacrament of the altar only received the consecrated host. They only received the body of the Lord. They did not receive from the cup. They did not receive the blood of the Lord. That was only received by the priest who was celebrating the sacrament. That is communion in one kind. The Lutherans said we should receive communion in both kinds. And that's the background. And I do think that's important today because it's just not as common a practice. I believe in most Roman Catholic parishes, it's up to the parish to decide, are we going to receive communion in both kinds or one kind only? I've been to a few Roman Catholic masses, usually for a funeral of a relative of a member. And at that, I've seen both. I have seen where both are offered, but some will only take in one kind because that's what they grew up with. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Pastor Smith, but again, it it seems to me that this is one of those that maybe leave some of our ears today scratching their heads a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, when you and I graduated seminary at the same time, but you took a call into the parish and went uh, right there to Grayson Smithville, and I was not far away from you in Austin, Texas. I didn't take a call right away. Um, I came about a year later, and I worked as a hospital chaplain for a Catholic hospital chain in Austin, Texas there. And so I would frequently, you know, be around or even just go sit and observe the daily mass there done by the priests within the Catholic hospital chain and the chapel. And so I would say this to your poll, it also depends on the age of the people. And there's probably fewer and fewer around that remember you know, pre-Vatican II, because what was that, the 1960s or something like that, I think, is when Vatican II happened. Pre-Vatican II, most Roman Catholics still followed this practice of only receiving it in one kind. Now, there were some exceptions to that, and the Council of Trent allowed for it. And then in Vatican II, actually, it's still kind of the doctrine where they say, you know, it should still be this practice of in one kind, if you actually look at the Catholic catechism. But you almost don't see it at all anymore. It's like they kind of regret that it's like in writing, that that this is the encouraged practice. Because uh, especially as I got to talk with priests, as I got to know them, especially at that Catholic hospital chain when I worked as a chaplain, became quite close to them, enjoyed a lot of great theological conversations. And a lot of them would just be quite open about the fact that they said, yeah, no, we kind of wish that that weren't the case anymore. But there were like still some older nuns there and also even some lay people that were older as well that still in the daily mass would receive only in one kind. The other thing that I would point to is that they have these Eucharistic ministers in the Roman Catholic Church that I saw a lot of in the hospital. So like the priests are pretty busy guys as you know we can be as pastors at times and so forth. And it's kind of how they view pastoral care and things like that too. But they'll take these lay people that they train to be Eucharistic ministers to take the host only into hospital rooms and so forth to Roman Catholics to give them communion, except it's only in the one kind when they do that, the Eucharistic ministers. And if you go like on a Catholic supplies website or something like that, and you're trying to order a communion kit, you can still find those that only have the pikes, you know, for holding the host and they're for these Eucharistic ministers because only the priests can even bring communion in both kinds. So you kind of still see it today 
although probably most people are not aware of it because post Vatican II, and so we, you know, that's a part of the history here too. Since the time of the Reformation, is that Vatican II kind of changed a lot of things, and so you almost don't see it at all anymore. So yeah, definitely the younger generations don't at all. And we should say to that that that's a good thing that communion in both kinds is seeming to become a more accepted practice within the Roman Catholic Church. The Lutherans had been talking about this for about 400 years before that, before the Second Vatican Council came and said, go ahead with communion in both kinds. The Lutherans had been saying this all along. And the reason for it, and Article 22 of the Augsburg Confession makes this plain in multiple places, the reason for communion in both kinds is because that has the Lord's command. It's right there in the first paragraph. And it says from the words of institution, from Matthew 26, Jesus says, drink of it, all of you. And for that very simple reason, the confessors say we should have communion in both kinds. And that should be not only for the priests, for the pastors, but also for the laity. Christ has given both the host and the cup, both his body and his blood, to his church. And to withhold part of that from the laity for, and we can talk about this perhaps later, for what sometimes sound like pious-ish reasons, to do so is not the authority of the church. The church has the authority given by Christ to follow his word. And his word very clearly says, take and eat and take and drink. And that emphasis on what the Lord's word is and says, and that the conscience must rest there, that is what makes this article continually very applicable for the church. Even at a time when you might ask someone, have you ever seen communion in only one kind? And they look at you like, what is that? Even when the particular practice of only having communion in one kind is going away, the way that the confessors address it with that eye on the clear command of the word of the Lord, that continues to be quite applicable to the church today, not only in terms of the sacrament, although we can talk about several applications to that, but even more broadly, when we think about what we are to do, what we are to believe as the church, we start with the clear word of Christ, and that is where our conscience must rest. Absolutely. And I like what you said. I, I think you said, you know, we should rejoice in this, and we should. And that's one of the real important things here, too, to consider as well is that, you know, a lot of times there's this, I think, unhelpful kind of notion that pervades Lutheranism where we're afraid of looking too Roman Catholic. And you especially get that among laity so many times, right? You know, that they'll say, oh, well, isn't that Roman Catholic? And, you know, they think that we shouldn't do it just because it looks like that. And again, emphasis on the conservative reformation of, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's going to look Roman Catholic. We only dealt with the abuses and we maintained everything that was good. And so one of the things that I often bring up is, I don't know that if there's enough concern that really we should probably be more concerned kind of on the other end of the spectrum with looking too reformed, especially in terms of the Lord's Supper that doesn't believe in the true presence, maybe at best, depending on what kind of what part of the spectrum they are on in terms of being reformed and things of that nature. They might give a spiritual presence there. And we've certainly talked about that in the various articles on here. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we should rejoice that we are very close to the Roman Catholics here. And I know, again, when I talk to my priest friends, and especially when I was in the hospital as a chaplain and got to talk to those priests there and everything, 
they definitely rejoiced that Lutherans acknowledged the true presence. I mean, again, there's differing parts of that, and we've talked about that in these articles as well. You know, we don't think that you'll find Jesus cells under a microscope or anything like that, right? But, you know, we should rejoice in this. And so that the fact that they have, since the time of the Reformation, even come around on this themselves and so forth, we say, great, you know, because it is, we want to focus on being faithful to the Lord's word and not giving any doubt to that, which I do think we do see kind of to the other extreme end of the spectrum as well. So um, with just a couple minutes here, do you want to kind of begin to address some of those pious-ish reasons that uh, you brought in there of how this practice kind of came about for them historically? Sure. So I did a little bit of reading in the confutation, which is the response by the Roman Catholics to the Augsburg Confession. And in the confutation, the Roman Catholics do acknowledge that in the early days of the church, both kinds were given to the laity. But they write this. It says, because of many dangers, this custom has been discontinued. That is the custom of receiving both kinds. When one considers the great number of people among whom are the old, young, tremulous, weak, and mentally impaired, great care must be taken so that the sacrament is not violated by the spilling of the wine. The large number of people also makes it difficult to administer both forms because the wine, when kept for a long period, would go sour and cause nausea or vomiting in those receiving it. It could also not be taken to the sick without danger of spilling. For these and other reasons, the churches, whose custom had been to commune in both kinds, were led, undoubtedly by the Holy Spirit, to give only the bread. This was based on the reasoning that the whole Christ is under each kind and is no less received under one kind than under two. Again, that's all from the confutation. So if I can summarize those reasons that they give. One is that they were concerned about the spilling of the very blood of Christ. They did not want to violate Christ's blood like that. Two is that they were concerned about the drinkability of the wine, if it would go sour and cause people to get sick. And then three, you mentioned the taking to the sick earlier. They were concerned about taking the wine to the sick. And then fourth, they said, well, it's not like Christ is divided. The whole Christ is received. It's not like you get half of Christ in the bread and half of Christ in the wine, and then you have the whole Christ. Christ is always present. And so if you just have one kind, you still have the whole Christ. Therefore, we can do this. Pious-ish reasons, I think. When we take a look at them, maybe a little bit more on the other side of the break, and we see again how the confessors approach it, they're thinking about it a little bit too much, perhaps, instead of just listening, as the confessors do, to the clear word of God. It doesn't matter how pious your reasons sound. It's always better just to listen to what God says. Absolutely. And I do want to get in a little more on the other side of the break here. So we're going to take our break and we'll pick that up on the other side of kind of taking a look at some of these best construction reasons that were given for celebrating the Lord's Supper only in one kind, I think that they're wrestling with things that we should give some consideration to. But the focus, as Pastor Apple so well put there for us, is to be faithful to Christ's word because that's where the consolation for our conscience comes in. So we'll pick that up on the other side of the break with our guest today, Pastor Timothy Apple. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The life of the Christian church is a life in exile. We are grieved by various trials. False teachers and their deceptive teachings wage war against the truth. 
How can we believe and live as faithful and joyful Christians while we sojourn here? This is Pastor Timothy Apple, host of Sharper Iron. We're starting a new series, The Imperishable Inheritance. We will be going through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Join us every weekday morning at 8 on KFUO to rejoice in the imperishable inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking about Article 22 from the Augsburg Confession on both kinds in the sacrament here today with our guest, Pastor Timothy Apple. He is pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. And Pastor Apple, just before break there, you gave us from the confutation, thanks for including that citation there, these, you call them pious-ish reasons. And uh, I just kind of like that phrasing, but uh, you know, putting the best construction on it, I think that they have some things that we should be concerned about. I think it's interesting, like one of the ones that is in the confutation and that you read there for us is the spilling of the wine, which I've encountered in the divine service. I remember when I was a field worker, uh, congregation in the St. Louis area and uh, Christmas Eve, a lady was really shaky and I, I was going down with the chalice and administering the, the Lord's Supper there. And uh, this lady with shaky hands spilled the chalice all over my robe, which, you know, as a poor seminarian student, like those robes are like $110, you know, or at least they were then. And, you know, so I had a ruined robe and everything. It's like, how do I deal with this reverently? Uh, Of course, you get other little spills here and there and things like that. And we do, we try to, we try to show reverence to the fact that this isn't just wine, that it is, you know, with Christ's word, his true blood. And so we want to be concerned about that. I always wonder why they're not concerned about crumbs that come from the host. I don't know. But again, things that we want to be concerned with because we do recognize the true presence and we do honor that they and we want to be faithful to the reverence of our Lord. I think we have a little bit of difference of kind of where we come down on finding that faithfulness. And I know you'll get us into that. But get us into some of these reasons and why are they bringing these up and what should we consider them on? in terms of how we regard the sacrament and what we're confessing here. So I think that I have seen, although again, my experience personally is limited. I tend to go to mostly Lutheran church services rather than Catholic ones. Probably the same is true for you, Pastor Smith. But I do believe that they are concerned about crumbs. I think I've seen, or at least I've heard of the practice in some places where a small plate will actually be held under the communicant's chin, essentially, to catch any crumbs that might fall. So there, there is a concern about crumbs. So I suppose they're consistent in that. And as you said, there is a sense of reverence here that is laudable, that they are concerned that the very body and blood of Christ, because that is what they are giving and receiving, that that would be treated properly with care, with great reverence as the precious gift that it truly is. And so this is a good concern. And and when spills happen in our own churches, Such reverence is also important that we, by the way we handle it and clean things, that we would indicate that that same reverence for the fact that this is Christ's own blood and treat it with that proper care. The place where the Catholics go too far in this is that they let that pious concern go beyond what Christ has said. They're so concerned with, as again the confutation says, violating the blood of Christ by spilling it that they go so far as not to give the blood of Christ. And now we've gone beyond a pious opinion or pious thought into going against what Christ has actually said. And that's where the confessors draw the line, and rightly so, because again, the conscience can only find rest on Christ's word. 
and Christ's word is that we take and eat his body and that we take and drink his blood. And so to withhold the sacrament in one kind from the laity is to go against Christ's word and no pious opinion has authority over that. In the confutation, you do see this presupposition come through from the Roman Catholics toward the beginning of their response. They write this, to give the laity the sacrament under both forms is an abuse and an act of disobedience according to the statutes and sanctions of the church. Notice where they say the abuse lies. It's a disobedience against what the church has said. The confessors are concerned with what has Christ said, and then letting the church speak the same thing that Christ has said. Here, the confutation places what the church has said above the words of Christ, and that's where the difference lies. And so, sure, pious opinions, and we should speak as charitably as possible, but we also need to be clear with the confessors that to allow a pious opinion go above the words of Christ, that is out of bounds, that is not the authority that we have, and we need to correct that abuse. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, yeah, I should clarify since I brought it up. I have seen the practice of the plate, you know, that's held underneath or or even sometimes a cloth to kind of catch the crumbs. Uh, I'll be honest, though, it tends to be only in the conservative parishes or with very conservative priests that, you know, even again, kind of as we see attention in a lot of church bodies, kind of the conservative faithfulness to traditions and those sorts of things. And it's generally grounded in a theology, I, I truly believe. But you kind of get a spectrum of how much are they going to stick to some of those older forms and things of that nature. And of course, we have that in our church body as well. But I tend to see almost a a very, especially here in the United States, a very American approach to the Lord's Supper, even by some Roman Catholic churches, which, again, I think just kind of broad American evangelicalism that has more reformed ideas just influences so many of our people in the Lutheran church and in the Catholic church that, yeah, I'll even see, you know, just things that traditionally Roman Catholics would not do. And again, as I talk to priest friends of mine and so forth, they'll even kind of openly say, yeah, you know, sometimes American Catholics don't realize how un-Catholic they are because they've allowed some of these practices to come in. But anyway, I think that does make the point that, again, there is this desire to be faithful and to show that reverence. And yet it doesn't play out to the fact of, you know, well, if you were really that concerned, then you ought to just not do the Lord's Supper at all right, would be kind of the thing that would make more sense is what I meant by bringing that up. But the reality is, is that, you know, they recognize that it is of a great benefit and a great consolation. And so they kind of play these fast and loose games. And that's where, again, just kind of introducing these things, even with pious motivations, if it brings into doubt things that Christ has surely given to us and given to his church to be for our consolation and for our great benefit, well, then that's just a really dangerous game and really should just not be tolerated. And so I think it's important, at least the thinking behind what the Lutherans are addressing here, we will still see contemporary applications to a whole host of things today. I mean, again, just being charitable and not trying to be attacking or anything like that. But, you know, some of the innovations that we see come into the church, especially in the United States still to this day and various church bodies and our own church body and things like that. I think a lot of times they're from good motivations. You know, we see kind of people, you know, that fall into complacency or, you know, it's kind of thrown out there as a dead orthodoxy or, you know, those sorts of things. And they want people to be engaging with God's word and things of that nature. 
And so that's where some of these things get started. But then they really they're just a dangerous game that tend to take us down some roads that lead us into at its worst, sometimes just open false teaching, right? Open false practice that really causes some problems. And I would say that that's kind of where we're at with this article, right? That this is this is really you're standing against the word of Christ here and they're not using the words. This is an open heresy here, but it's it's got to be on that level, right? I think, again, as you said, the application of this article for us today is the way that the confessors make use of the word of Christ. And they put their stand right there on the word of Christ, that with whatever pious motivations there might have been. And certainly, I think we would probably be safe to say that there were some impious motivations happening as well, that there might have been power struggles and other sorts of sinful motivations happening at the same time. Whatever those motivations might have been, to let those motivations contradict and lead the church in a direction that goes against what Christ has said, that is the wrong direction to go. Only on the Lord's command, only on his promise, can the conscience have true rest. And I think you're right that that's where we see several applications for us today. So as an example, and I think you mentioned the word certainty before, and that is that is certainly a key when it comes to the sacrament of the altar. The Lord gives us this precious gift of his body and his blood so that we might be certain. There's no doubt that you have received the body and blood of Jesus according to his command for the benefit that his words state for the forgiveness of sins. And you know, I love to bring in the catechism and the catechism's focus on the word of Christ. When you think about what Luther says about the sacrament of the altar, how the word is the main thing. The word is what delivers what Christ gives his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins. It's that same focus on the word that's evident here in this article and that same word that alone can give certainty. And so as an example, when it comes to the elements that we use, sometimes this has been in question in churches. And again, I can only really speak from my American experience, but within the United States of America, there are those churches and not necessarily Lutheran ones that instead of using wine for the Lord's Supper, they will use grape juice. And the question that we should think about when it comes to that practice given to us here in Article 22 is, what is Christ's command here? What was it that he gave them to drink? Well, we know that he gave them wine. That's what it would have had to have been there in this last supper at the Passover. He gave them wine. And when we start introducing innovations, one of the first casualties is certainty. Is this really the meal that Christ has given? Is this really what he said, what he gave for us to do? If it's not, if there's a question, not only is there a certainty about what we receive, but there's a certainty about the benefit. Is this really for the forgiveness of sins? Am I really following the Lord's word? And that's where the conscience can become troubled when there is that doubt. The doubt is removed when we stand upon the word of Christ. And so that I think is one of the key things that we need to hold on to from this article still today. And when it comes to the supper, particularly, are we doing, are we listening to what Christ has given? If we're not, even with pious reasons, we should take care so that we don't give consciences room for doubt, but rather draw the consciences to the certainty that is theirs in Christ. Yeah, and I think, once again, while the specifics of withholding, especially by the clergy, of particularly the wine here, Christ's blood from the laity, while that's the main focus of this, I do think that you see some of these issues, again, even with the Lord's Supper still come in today, 
and you mentioned grape juice there. And, you know, I want to be very sensitive to these. We're, again, not attacking anyone. We're not trying to pit you against your pastor or anything. Talk about your pastor with this. Don't ever use this show or me or Pastor Apple against your pastor. You know, we can talk as brother pastors and so forth all the time. And we do that in our circuits and things within the church body as well. But I do want to talk about this issue a little bit that, you know, of course, it comes up from time to time. You know, do we offer grape juice? you know, usually in the individual cups, which can be a conversation point as well at times, right? You know, the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper with the cup, right? You know, and so there's always that debate on, you know, are individual cups even a part of what the Lord gave us? And again, that's maybe opening a whole can of worms, but, you know, these are the sorts of things that we're going to see this sort of be wrestled with in our churches with. And so the bringing in of grape juice for those who have issues with alcohol and so forth. And I don't want to put you just on the spot here yourself, Pastor Apple. So I'll give my own a little bit here. You know, generally I try to sit down and say, okay, we need to have a pastoral conversation about this if you have a concern and so forth. And I want to be sensitive to those things. And so, you know, it's never good to just kind of react to things and to do something without giving some conversation and so forth. But one of the general things that I try to do in having those pastoral conversations where there is a, a genuine concern, you know, especially if they have issues with alcohol and so forth, is I might say, well, the Lord gave us this supper, obviously using wine, as you said, and we don't want to cause anything to bring into doubt the gifts that he has to give you in this. And so my general encouragement is to say, Grape juice, we don't have that assurance. And what we can do is, my general practice is what we were taught in seminary is to take mostly water and put just a drop of wine in there or something. Basically, it's watered down wine then. And, you know, again, it just becomes a problem in the broader spectrum of things when we just start monkeying around too much. So we want to be very careful and make sure that there is a genuine need for some sorts of pastoral care concerns there, but uh, also just this sort of thinking, being faithful to Christ's word is still where we want to have our focus, even with some of the sorts of things that continue to come in in the Lord's Supper, still in our contemporary applications today. Certainly. And I appreciate what you said about visiting with your pastor on these matters. That is, is certainly important because he is the one given to care for your conscience according to the word of God. And what you suggested, Pastor Smith, about diluting some of the wine in water, I think is a fine way of trying to care for that troubled conscience who desires to receive the Lord's blood according to his command, and yet may have reasons that the alcohol could hurt him. I think another area where this focus on the Lord's command and seeking to be faithful to what he has said and what he has given, having been through a pandemic recently in which our normal way of gathering was very much disrupted. There were some congregations, and again, out of a pious pastoral concern, desiring to give this gift of the Lord to their members, went to some kind of an online format where the pastor was in one place consecrating elements or perhaps just speaking words. The elements and the person receiving were in another place, perhaps saying the words over the elements themselves. And this practice is another one in which I think these questions arise. Is this really what the Lord said? I'm reminded of the way Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about coming together for the Lord's Supper. And when we think about 
communion, even the word that is given there, koinonia in the Greek, this sharing together, this fellowship with. There's so such nuance in that word that's hard to get into one English word. When we think about that, can that really be the meal when it's celebrated apart from each other? Certainly there are cases in which a pastor, and we've talked about this already, takes it to a person who is sick, who cannot come to the Lord's table. But even then, they are together, pastor and parishioner, right there together, receiving the meal, often together. Is it the same thing when a screen separates us? Is that really the Lord's Supper? Those are the questions that come about. And again, when we when we see the way that the Lord speaks, drink of it, all of you, take and eat. I mean, they're there together. This is the nature of the church is to be together, to separate ourselves and to do it online. While again, a wonderful reason, a pastoral care concern, you need this gift of the Lord. The desire to receive the gift of the Lord shouldn't go above such that we receive the gift in a way that he hasn't given it or hasn't commanded it. And I think that's another place where we see a pious concern certainly start to go above where a pious concern should and go around the Lord's word or sometimes maybe even against the Lord's word. And that's where great care needs to be exercised so that, again, we comfort consciences with the certainty of what Christ has said instead of leading into any kind of doubt when we wonder, well, did Christ really say? We always want to avoid that. We always want to stick with the certainty that belongs to Christ's word. Absolutely. And I might tag on one other thing that kind of is on the other side of this, that again, kind of the main focus of this article is what the clergy are doing and withholding. But parishioners, kind of in our contemporary context, what we tend to see more is where parishioners will withhold themselves. And, you know, I've seen practices where over concerns of whether it be celiac disease in terms of the hosts or, you know, alcohol concerns and so forth, where lay people will just abstain from one kind or the other, but still come up and receive the other. And again, that's, that's just uneasy. And we don't want to encourage that. And especially if you're a lay person, don't make those decisions yourselves. Talk about this with your pastors. Talk about the concerns that you have, because again, as Pastor Apple so well put it, that's the one whom the Lord has given to you to attend to your conscience and the care of your soul. And so uh, have those conversations and have them in regard for God's word, rather than just assuming that, you know, we can do this because we have this concern. And again, it just, it brings into doubt so many things, and that's an unhelpful place to be. You also mentioned there too, in citing 1 Corinthians 11, and when talking about faithfulness to God's word, that brings paragraph three in here from the article 22. And lest anyone misleadingly say that this refers only to priests, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, Paul cites an example. I think it's interesting that you'll even see this, and I've encountered this in talking with priests today who still kind of admire at least, and the Council of Trent kind of solidified these things as well. Again, it allowed for receiving in both kinds, but kind of encouraged that receiving in one kind is still kind of the preferred. But I know priests today, They'll even cite that First Corinthians eleven twenty seven passage, you know, and saying, you know, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup. <laughs> and so I think it's funny because what follows obviously is of the Lord in an unworthy manner, <laughs> you know, and we have to understand what or means there. But they cite that, you know, it's like, well, you know, see clearly again, this is another one of those. And I think that's one of those impious, you know, excuses for receiving in the wine kind and so forth. But uh, get us into the scripture here a little bit too, and, and their use of scripture in making their case here. 
So the passage that is quoted here is from 1 Corinthians 11, specifically verse 27. And I think it's it's worth seeing that the confessors likely have in mind the full context of 1 Corinthians 11. Much of that chapter deals with the practice concerning the Lord's Supper. Paul quotes the very words of the Lord, the ones that we hear every time we have the Lord's body and blood. He quotes those words there in 1 Corinthians 11. And the surrounding verses, in addition to verse 27 particularly, make the same point. For example, verse 26 of the same chapter says, For as often as you eat this bread and, there's the word and, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And worth noting there is that the word you could actually be translated y'all. This is a you plural. And so not just the priests, this is for the whole church. If I could briefly bring up the confutation again, they do cite scripture. I, I mentioned that they seem to place the authority of the church above scripture, but they do make an attempt at citing scripture. And they bring up passages, for example, such as Acts 2, verse 42, in which the early church is said to have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the confutation uses that verse to say, look, when Luke describes the celebration of the supper, he only mentions the breaking of bread. And there are other verses that they use as well. They would bring up the Emmaus Road count in which Christ breaks the bread, he gives it to them, and then he vanishes when they recognize him. And and they would say, look, these are examples of communion in just one kind. And the reason I bring that up is because the verses that they mention aren't the first ones we look at when we deal with the sacrament. When it comes to the sacrament of the altar, the first place we should look is the place where Christ instituted it, the words of institution. What did he say there? Take and eat, take and drink. And we should always let the words of institution about the sacrament run the show and interpret the other verses in light of those. And I think just that comparison between the way the Augsburg Confession brings up 1 Corinthians 11, which again includes those words of the Lord, and seeing that in contrast to the verses that are brought up by the confutation is another good example when we think about how we read the scriptures. When we want to talk about the Lord's Supper, let's start with those passages in which Christ instituted and work our way out from there rather than reversing the order. Yeah, I mean, this is basic, you know, how we understand scripture, right? I mean, this is basic things that we teach to our confirmands and everything, you know, like the whole line of scripture interprets scripture is the idea that you start with the obvious, no question about it. These are the Lord's words. This is what he gives to us, scripture passages. And then those other ones that maybe we might have some questions about or seem a little obscure, things like that. We use those other more clear parts of scripture to understand those parts because scripture doesn't contradict itself, right? You know, oftentimes we'll see what seems like a paradox, you know, things that seem in contradiction, but actually aren't. But yeah, this whole point, basically, again, as especially as I've talked with Roman Catholic friends and especially priests and so forth, my general position a lot of times is, you know, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> like, you know, what, like, why are you bringing this in this way? Like, you know, let's, let's start with the obvious clear words of Christ, right? This is what he gives to his disciples and thus to his church. And then let's get to these other things, you know, like, thanks for bringing that in. But, uh, you know, like, you know, I'll say to them, you know, thanks for bringing that in, but that doesn't seem to be the place that we want to start. Right. And so you, you kind of got to back them up in the conversation there. That's right. And I, I do think it's, again, a good example to see how the confessors make use of the scripture so that we might do the same. Again, when we think about these things today, when we think about our practice of the Lord's Supper, let's let the words of Jesus run the way that we go with this, rather than other verses that may have something to do with the sacrament, sure, 
But let's start with the words of Jesus, the very clear command. That's where our conscience is going to find rest. And again, you see this throughout this article. It's striking to me in paragraph nine, for example, you know, any custom introduced against God's commandments is not to be allowed. And then it follows in paragraph 10 that the custom, this custom of one kind, it's been received. And this is not only against the scripture. Again, you see where the confessors are placing their consciences on the clear word of God, which is recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And again, to see where they're resting, that's a certainty. The words of Christ, the ones recorded for us in Scripture, all of Holy Scripture is breathed out by God. That's where they're going to find rest for their consciences. And, you know, they do bring up church history. They mention several people who, in one way or another, give evidence to the practice of communion in both kinds. The mention of, of Cardinal Cassanus, I believe that's how you say his name there. There's a, in the back of the Concordia edition that, that we use here on Concord Matters, there's some information about him. And I also did a little bit of research. It seems that in a, an epistle of his, and he's Nicholas of Cusa is his name, in an epistle, a letter that he wrote, he identified the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 as the place where the cup had been withdrawn from the laity, which means that the practice of communion one kind is just over 300 years old by the time of the Augsburg Confession. Once again, that means that history is on the confessor's side. But again, they're not hanging their hat on the history. They're hanging their hat on the word of Christ. And it, it's nice when those things go together. And as you, you see in the Augsburg Confession, they usually do. But the point is, the authority always lies with Christ and his word. Yeah, I think that's well said, and especially as you get there again in paragraph 10 where it said, you know, this custom has been received not only against the scripture, but also against old canon law and the example of the church and the example of Cardinal Cassanus there. And yeah, again, the main emphasis here is, is, and we just, we seem to make this point every single week on this show. And it is the point I think that we should make as Lutherans is that we find our certainty. We ground it on Christ and his word. I mean, if there's anything that Lutherans should be known for, it's that. We're known for a lot of other things and some things that I'm not sure are actually all that accurate or exclusive to the Lutheran Church, but uh, we certainly should be known for finding our comfort, our certainty there in the sure word of Christ. Uh, just a couple minutes left here. Uh, anything else that you want to bring in before we kind of wrap things up here today? Maybe perhaps we should mention that very last paragraph here mentions omitting the procession with the host. The reference there is to the festival of the Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, which was celebrated the Thursday following Trinity Sunday. And the idea was that you would take the consecrated host and you would essentially carry it throughout the city as a, a testimony of sorts that, look, Christ dwells and lives among us, which sounds pious enough. But the confessors here make the point that, well, you're actually dividing the sacrament here. Christ didn't say take and walk through the city, Christ said, take and eat. And so let's take and eat, not take and, and I don't mean this in a, in a callous way, but take and parade. That's not the purpose. The sacrament is not to be divided. We're going to listen to what Christ says. And incidentally, the Corpus Christi festival in the year 1530 would have fallen on June 16th when the confessors were already there in Augsburg, just a few days before the confession was actually presented and they refused to participate. And so you, you see a little bit of connection here between the Augsburg Confession and the history when they were there in Augsburg. Yeah, absolutely. And it became a real 
part of the issue, right? Uh, was the fact that they were not participating in this Corpus Christi parade and so forth. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a minute or so here, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of wrap things up for us here today and talk about you know, how does this article, Article 22 from the Augsburg Confession on both kinds in the sacrament, how does this relate to the rest of the Augsburg Confession and what we have coming and also still to our lives today? As we've been saying throughout our conversation today, the key to what's happening here is that the conscience only finds rest in the clear word of Christ. And the clear word of Christ when it comes to the sacrament is take and eat, take and drink the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. There the conscience finds rest. There the conscience finds certainty. And it is that same certainty of conscience that runs throughout the Augsburg Confession and indeed all the Lutheran confessions, that it is founded upon Christ, his grace. There is our salvation. There is our certainty. That's why we receive communion in both kinds is for the sake of that certainty. That is why we rest only on the word of Christ. There we have certainty for our salvation by his grace. Absolutely. And we'll certainly see that play out next week as we take a look at Article 23 from the Augsburg Confession on the marriage of priests. Once again, as we're now into these later articles on the various abuses that needed to be corrected in the church and the Lutherans are presenting their position, they simply let Scripture speak on those matters. And so we'll see not just what the Lutheran confessors have to say, but what Scripture has to say on the marriage of priests and really about marriage and family in general next week when we look at Article 23 from the Augsburg Confession. For today, thank you to Pastor Timothy Apple for joining us on Concord Matters and teaching us this Lutheran biblical confession on the use of both kinds and the sacraments from Article 22 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us again here today, Pastor Apple. Thanks for having me. And thank you also to our underwriter, Wicking Vicar. Be sure to check out their great line of performance clerical wear at wickingvicar.com. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, Keep confessing, church.